When I began to prepare for this interview with Abilash Medallier, I got to his LinkedIn bio. It was succinct, just a couple of lines. He didn't mention being an innovator or a disruptor. He didn't even use the word strategy. Instead, he wrote a simple philosophy, which actually proved to be a pretty good description of what this fledgling podcast of mine is all about. I'll read it for you. I believe the world will be a better place and lives better led when each individual is intentional about his or her economic consumption and investing decisions. And impact investing is a key pillar of this emerging zeitgeist. Great words and a great way to get us started right here on the Good Future podcast, where we talk about the future of business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. I'm John Treadgold, and I want to dive right in because it was a genuine thrill to have the opportunity to speak with Abilash. He's the head of research at the Global Impact Investing Network, otherwise known as the GIN, which is a pretty great acronym. The organization has taken on a really important leadership role in maintaining the integrity of this new financial paradigm of impact investing, which is vital as this space grows and stretches across the globe. Abilash was generous with his insights, and there are a few better equipped to help us understand the world of impact investing. And while this term might not be familiar to everybody, that's okay, because as the conversation progresses, we explore the concept from all angles, and really break down this idea of investing, of making a profit, but doing it with purpose in mind, and ensuring there's always a positive social or environmental impact. We talk about impact measurement and the challenges of setting universal principles. We dig into the different asset classes and how they're evolving. But there's also some really practical advice about how people who might not work in the sector, who might not even work in finance, can take a few small steps to bring more purpose to their jobs and to their lives. They also dug a little further back and asked Abilash about how he ended up in his current role, to how he developed his interest in sustainability, as well as this innate need to, in his words, fundamentally change the expectations we have for the role of business and of finance in society. Now, Abilash will be coming to Sydney at the start of November for the Impact Investing Summit, but while Abilash is based in Seattle, he actually knows Australia quite well, and that story is where our conversation kicks off. So, nothing left to do but dive on in to the first episode of the Good Future Podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. Your research director at the Global Impact Investing Network must be endlessly interesting and, and I'm sure our listeners are keen to hear more about it. But before we go there, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the journey that got you there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the story actually starts in Australia with you studying in Melbourne. That's right. Yeah, actually, uh, I was born in India, but grew up in, in Melbourne and went to Melbourne Uni. Like many students, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life um, at that point. And so, like many others, I began my career in management consulting, which you know I think is a great first job to learn about the business world at large and help you figure out what you want to do over the long term. And I definitely learned a lot in this role, but I think it was also pretty clear fairly early on that while I found the work uh, quite intellectually challenging, I seemed to lack you know, the personal fulfillment from the work. And I itched for, I guess, a sense of purpose and aligning that um, to my career. And so okay. I started you know, Googling some random terms such as international development and 
I stumbled across this term called microfinance, which I'd never really heard before. And this was 2005. So this was before microfinance was well known. Um, and I think what intrigued me was the tagline said alleviating poverty using market forces. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let, let me look into this a bit more. And, and soon enough, I moved to India to join the burgeoning microfinance industry there, um, working as a consultant first and then as an investor at one of India's earliest impact investing funds. And then after several years in India, my wife and I were moving to New York. And that's when I joined the gym, um, looking to work on broader systems level change in the impact investing ecosystem. Having worked in the field in India for a few years, I felt firsthand that we were at a pivot point um, in the industry's evolution. And so via the gin, I could have a central influence in directing the, the mainstream or mainstreaming of the market more broadly. Yeah, that's quite a journey. I'd love to just step back uh, a little bit there. What did you study originally? I did a BCom and a BA, so um, with specializations in finance and political science. When you were at uni, did you sort of have that feeling? Was there a social conscience? I mean, that's a bit of a, a cliche for a, um, an art student and that kind of thing. But <laughs> was it on your radar or maybe it was just a sort of a niggle and you didn't quite know how to scratch it? Probably the latter. I think certainly as an art student, you know, there is an inherent interest in social issues and, and the humanities. But uh, I think it was like you said, it was more more of a niggle and I, and I had to explore it myself once I got out into the into the real world, quote unquote. And you started at the gin some time ago now, is it sort of more than 10 years, was it? Uh, it's been um, a little over six years. I started towards okay. the end, end of 2012. And so how have you seen the landscape of, of impact investing change in that time? In a number of different ways, I think, you know, compared to a decade back when I began in the industry, the general awareness and interest of the term impact investing and the practice of impact investing has certainly grown exponentially. And also the state of practice um, has become a lot more sophisticated. Um, I think it's more become more sophisticated in the sense that it's recognized that being intentional as an impact investor is great, but it's not enough. Um, it's seen as one of those you know, necessary but perhaps insufficient conditions. In addition to being intentional, I think it's increasingly recognized that one needs to have very rigorous impact measurement and impact management processes in place. Secondly, I think it's become more sophisticated in the understanding that there are many different ways to be an impact investor. Uh, perhaps a decade back, there was this perception that an impact investor was someone doing very early stage venture deals in emerging markets. Um, and while that's still a critical segment of the industry, we know that impact investing can take many forms. Um, it can include, for example, a pension fund investing in solar energy projects, say in Western Europe, or it can include a family office that's investing in conservation in Indonesia, or even a bank that's supporting access to education in low-income neighborhoods here in the US. You know, all of these investors can approach their investments with strong fidelity to impact. Mm, it's really interesting the way this term, this sector industry is expanding, which is great in many ways. It's growing and, and having more of an impact, an impact and influence. But as it grows, and as you say, there are lots of different segments, we come to this issue of a definition. So I guess it's a, a good problem to have that there's growth there and the gin has a, a really sort of valuable role as, I guess, a, a holder of, of the definition. Do you think that that obviously evolved to a certain point? Is there more room to move? Do you think that that definition will have to stretch even more? 
I think the definition of impact investing historically um, has been defined by this idea of of intentionality, um, that the central intention of an impact investor is to address some sort of social or environmental issue alongside seeking a financial return. Um, But of course, intentionality is subjective and it can manifest in many different forms. Um, And I think as the industry has grown um, and expanded, having this idea of intentionality as the core defining characteristic has been quite helpful because it's enabled different investors to come into the space. But now that the industry is, you know, quote unquote, mainstreaming, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that as our conversation progresses, it's equally important that we identify some core set of characteristics or principles or behaviors or standards that an impact investor needs to ascribe to, to be able to credibly call himself or herself an impact investor. In that sense, there will be some additional characteristics or standards, if you will, that will be supportive of the central idea of intentionality and the measurement of one's impact that will continue to strengthen the definition and maintain the integrity of practice. Well, that's right. And integrity is vital there. And, you know, impact washing is something we hear a lot about. And that brings us to, I guess, the other side of the card, which is the measurement side. And if intentionality is on the investor side, do you find that measurement is more, I guess, the company, the portfolio company or the entity that, that's working, that it's their role and, and they do sort of the measurement and that's where the accounting principles come from? Is that how you sort of see that side? I think an impact investor, you know, will obviously need to work with the companies that um, he or she invests in, um, in order to gather the data to be able to measure and manage impact effectively. But I think it's it's not something that an impact investor can entirely outsource, if you will, to the company that um, that they're investing in. I think an impact investor who's intentional about impact needs to also measure and manage to that impact in ways that make sense given their particular strategy. Um, and resources at their at their disposal. Um, and so a, a central area of work for us at the GIN, for example, is actually impact measurement and management. Um, we've got a dedicated team focused on helping impact investors navigate and identify the best approaches to measure and manage the impact of their of their investments, which naturally requires working hand in hand with the companies that they invest in to be able to gather and analyze that data. That's right. And and this measurement story is such a huge part of it. I mean, we've got decades, probably centuries of of history of financial accounting and, and it's turned into a very sophisticated and universally accepted models and frameworks. But for impact investing, we're sort of just at the start. Uh, maybe you can give us a feel for how GIN is is sort of driving their measurement frameworks and, and you know, how you see the need for a universal framework, how you sort of see that side of things. Because impact investors are motivated by a very diverse range of social and environmental issues, it's difficult to see a future in which there are, say, the same small handful of metrics that every investor measures their impact against. Um, again, I think if we go back to some concrete illustrations, you know, thinking about supporting agriculture investments in Eastern Africa or clean energy projects in the U.S. or education uh, investments in India. Now, these are all very different types of investments and very different types of social and environmental challenges that one's trying to address. And so the ways in which an investor would measure and manage their impact would also vary significantly. So I think where the industry will settle, and this is um, the direction in which we're moving and in which the gin is centrally involved, is in developing a common set of principles or standards for impact measurement and management 
and for the behaviors of, um, of impact investors. And there are you know, many tools in the market that are developing and there are certain uh, approaches that investors are starting to, to coalesce ag- uh, around, um, such as um, the impact management project, which identifies five dimensions for impact measurement and management, and the IFC, um, which is a member of the GINS um, Investors Council, has recently released a set of more process guidelines, if you will, for impact measurement and management that all investors can adhere to. Um, and I think that's the direction in which we're moving. Mm, okay, so there's a huge breadth of diversity in terms of scale, but also in terms of, of who the beneficiaries are and, and the challenges they're facing. And that's where the GIN is doing a lot of really important work to unite these groups and, and their varied aims. As Director of Research, I'm keen to hear more about one of your major reports, which is the annual Impact Investor Survey. Uh, it's really influential in the industry. It offers unique insights into how the market's evolving. Can you talk to some of the key findings from the 2018 report? Now, research at the GIN um, focuses on the idea, um, or is motivated by the idea, that given the impact investing industry is still young and developing, um, we need a lot more data and evidence and information um, on what's going on in the market um, so that we're able to you know, bridge information gaps and offer investors actionable and useful data that they can use to better inform their investment strategies and their investment practice. And so that's kind of the fundamental driver behind the research that we conduct. And there's a lot of different types of research that we produce, um, including on market activity, market performance, and more qualitative research on practice. As you noted, um, our most widely recognized um, research uh, effort is our annual impact investor survey. And uh, we've been conducting this um, for eight years now. And the 2018 report came out just a few months ago. So let me just touch on a couple of highlights. I think the first is that you know, the impact investing market is very diverse in terms of the wide range of different organization types um, that participate in impact investing from foundations to family offices to banks um, to pension funds to development finance institutions and of course a wide range of fund managers. But it's also diverse in terms of focus. Impact investments take place all over the world um, and about half of assets under management go to a range of different emerging markets and about half go to developed markets. There's also significant diversity in terms of sector. Impact investors are motivated by issues as diverse as financial inclusion, um, to energy access, to low-income housing, um, education, and and healthcare. And it's also diverse in terms of asset class. Uh, Impact investing is an approach that can be applied across different asset classes. Historically, most impact investment has taken place through private markets, such as private equity and private debt, um, but there's growing interest in public equity and public market products, especially as retail investors become more interested in um, in impact investing. Um, so that's one main finding. I think the other main finding that I highlight is that overwhelmingly impact investors are satisfied um, to date with the performance of their impact investments on both financial and impact expectations. Um, our survey finds that for the most part, the vast majority report that their impact investments are performing in line um, with their impact and financial expectations, while a significant minority also report outperformance. Um, Now, of course, this is self-reported data against expectations, but um, it's a promising sign for the continued growth of the industry. And is 
the issue of bringing in different asset classes. You mentioned bringing in public equity as an impact investment that will attract more retail investors. I think that's quite an interesting element in that it's been quite an insular world and very much focused on institutional investors. How do you see that importance of opening up to retail investors? I think it's critical. You know, There's certainly a lot of positivity and momentum in impact investing and the direction that the industry has taken over the last 10 years is certainly worth highlighting and it's worth celebrating. But it's also, I think, important to acknowledge um, that against the larger scheme of things, impact investing is still quite small, um, especially, say, when you compare it with the dollars needed to address you know, major global challenges. Given that reality, I think, and the growing interest of various investors in um, impact investing, I think it's critical to be able to expand the market to new investors and new sources of capital uh, and new asset owners that a wide range of investment products are made available to investors across the risk return spectrum. And so that's where I think public equities and making available financial products to retail investors comes into the picture. The gin has such an important role there and you guys seem really flexible in your ability to absorb these different asset classes and you know you obviously survey organizations that sort of might not be your members and, and you've really taken on this role of, of helping shepherd this this industry more broadly do you sort of have systems to help with that growth you know you've been there for six years so maybe you can help us understand how it has shifted and how the team there managed that expansion yeah, the GIN's mission is to enhance the scale and effectiveness of impact investing. And, and our approach to do this is through field building or ecosystem building, or to put it in more concrete terms, through addressing uh, challenges that are common to a range of investors more broadly. And so over time, um, you know, we've adjusted the types of programs or services that we focus on to reflect the critical needs of the market and what the important pain points are of investors. So as we spoke about, you know, research was, has always been an area of focus for the gin, but in 2012, we decided that we would need to set up a dedicated research function. Similarly, um, we expanded our efforts on training starting in 2012 by setting up a fund manager training program. Now looking forward, um, we're thinking of launching um, initiatives that are better focused on educating investors on the sidelines of the market and providing them with the support that they need to take that first step and maybe become active in impact investing by making their first impact investment. And so over time, our programs and approaches that we take continue to evolve and respond to the critical pain points that are needed um, in the industry. And just coming back to the survey, uh, I think it'd be good to inject a little bit of focus on the Australian experience and the region down here. The annual report tells us that the, the fastest rates of growth in impact investing is in the Asia Pacific region. How do you see uh, Australia fitting into the growth trajectory of this neighbourhood? You know, Australia obviously may be a small country population-wise, but I think um, punches well above its weight when it comes to the size of its financial markets. Um, we know that um, the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, I think is valued at over a trillion dollars, which makes it one of the largest in the world. We know that uh, superannuation assets are around one and a half trillion dollars, which I think puts it at the top three um, in the world. So very, very impressive numbers. And I think our research shows that Australian investors, both private sector ones and the Australian government are increasingly active in impact investing throughout the Asia Pacific region. Um, in fact, uh, at the GIN, we're, we're quite proud to work with the Australian government on, on building the impact investing ecosystem in Asia Pacific. We worked with them to release a report just a couple of months ago on 
the Southeast Asian impact investing landscape. And I think what that report showed is that the impact investing market in the region is growing, like you just mentioned, but there's also enormous potential going forward. Our work continues to emphasize that we live in an interconnected world. And what that means is that challenges in one region can affect all of us. And so Australian investors obviously have many reasons to continue to support positive impact in the Asia Pacific. Very exciting. So lots of opportunity from, I guess, a financial perspective, but also having an impact. And I think that that kind of defines the Australian experience in that we have the financial prosperity, but then lots of opportunity to make an impact in Asia Pacific and help with development there. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to this sector at the moment in terms of wanting to have an impact, but also bring purpose to their roles. I mean, ever since I I first announced this podcast, I've had a steady stream of people, those working in finance and and those who aren't, who have reached out, really interested in what I'm doing and and hungry to know more. Do you see this agitation for change coming uh, as much from inside the walls of finance as from the asset owners and, and everyday customers who are on the outside? I think it's definitely coming from multiple directions um, at the same time. I think employees are increasingly wanting to feel that their values are aligned with the values of their employer. Um, you know, they seek purpose in their jobs beyond just, um, say, a salary. Asset owners are another driver, um, and this is from everyday retail investors all the way to large institutions. Asset owners are increasingly asking the question, you know, what is the world that I'm investing in? Um, And so there's some agitation coming from there. And it's also coming from customers. I think customers are researching the practices of companies they buy from. Um, They're eager to know who's in the supply chain. They're eager to know what are the working conditions like, how are the materials sourced, and those types of questions. And I think all of that, what it's doing, it's fundamentally changing the social expectations around the role and purpose of business and finance um, in society. You did mention early on your experience at university when you felt you know there was change that could be made and and you then moved into consulting and had a niggle that you, you wanted to bring more purpose into your life and and this is really part of the zeitgeist now in the world rather cliche but the millennial drive for finding purpose i mean if there are people at home listening in the car at the gym maybe they're sort of fed up with their job what's one small first step that you think sort of personally that, that people can take today to, to get involved? It just starts by asking the questions, you know, asking your bank or asking your super fund manager whether they have ESG or impact investing options, or even asking them the simple question around, you know, do you track the social and environmental impact or footprint of your investments and what's in your portfolio? If they say no, maybe ask them why not and when they plan to do so. You know, I think while impact investing itself is still small and growing, it's becoming increasingly unacceptable, I think, for firms not to offer their clients at a minimum ESG or negative screening um, investment options. Um, so I think it just starts with that that question and forcing yourself to explore what's in your portfolio. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it comes down to that sort of empowerment issue of, of people being able to ask the questions, which I guess is a matter of understanding and research and education and, and the gyms working really hard with that. And that's really, I guess, the financial services being incentivized to, you know, if people ask enough questions, then they'll produce the product. So I guess right. the power's in our hands. Exactly. And that comes to this word uh, mainstream is, is impact investing mainstream. And while others say um, it has, the other perspective is that we're just at the beginning of a new era of profit with purpose. How do you see the, the current status? And is there a, mm. a milestone that you're looking looking out for? I've used the word mainstream a couple of times on this call already. Um, And I think mainstream is one of those words that 
it's a throwaway word without any agreed upon definition. And we're starting to hear it a lot in impact investing. The way I would think about it is that impact investing is certainly mainstreamed in terms of awareness, and it's probably reaching a critical mass in terms of interest. But we're still a far way away from mainstreaming in terms of activity. Um, and you know, despite all the progress and growth over the last decade, which, like I said, has been quite impressive and is worth celebrating, the scale of impact investing is quite small compared with what's needed to address major challenges. So I think as far as milestones are concerned, maybe I'll touch on two. One is a little bit more on the technical side and one's a little bit more on the normative side. On the technical side, I think a major milestone that will happen in the near future is that the industry will settle on a common set of principles or standards for impact measurement and management. And we spoke about that a little bit already. But the reason I think this will be critical is because this will help shore up the integrity of practice, um, which will then unlock more capital because ultimately the central goal of impact investors is to contribute to a positive impact. On the normative side, I think the next major milestone will simply be the normalization or the integration of impact into financial decision making. This may be a little idealistic, but we do believe that at some point in the foreseeable future, it'll simply be unacceptable to invest with complete disregard for your impacts on people and the planet. That's not to say that all investing will become impact investing in its purest sense, um, but rather principles such as long-term thinking, um, multi-stakeholder optimization, etc., will simply become normal practice, both because that's what's expected um, and because it's ultimately good for the bottom line. Well, that's right. That's a really interesting element, isn't it, where we think this sort of started out as an ethical choice, but really in the end, it's it's just a risk metric and it makes good business sense. And I think that's a big part of, of what's driving the current boom, the current momentum. But it is interesting, earlier on, you mentioned the um, IFC developing their principles. And, and I think it was during one of their panel sessions that the World Bank ran where it was discussed that impact investing has been very good at branding, but activity is what lags. And you did mention that. So do you see that we've sort of built the structures and now it's a matter of activity to go forward? And is there any sort of shifts, maybe economic shifts or something that needs to just trip that circuit and get us over the line to bring that capital in and, and get it to build further? I wouldn't go as far as to say that um, you know we've built the systems or the foundation and now we just need activity to come in. I think that's a symbiotic relationship. I think we need to continue to build the ecosystem and elements of the infrastructure um, while at the same time continue to bring in more activity you know, that will build on itself. And we published a report earlier this year, uh, in fact, called the Market Roadmap Report, which is centrally focused on this question and what's it going to take to exponentially increase the scale of activity. Um, and this is freely available on our website. But here are a few highlights. I think the first, you know, which we've spoken about a little bit already, so we don't need to get into it in more detail right now, but it's the greater integrity in the practice of impact measurement and management and, and greater standardization in approaches. But I think the second is just more high quality data um, and research and information on market activity and performance um, so that people on the sidelines have more credible information on what's going on and what they can expect so that they can make a more informed decision on how they can enter the market. And a third area, I think, is just more financial products that are suitable to investors across the risk return spectrum. Um, I think we've spoken a lot in this conversation about the growing demand for impact investing, but without suitable investment products, this latent interest won't be translated into actual capital flows. And so those are at least three critical areas where 
ongoing field building work is needed to be able to encourage more investors to come into impact investing. Mm, and you mentioned that question of demand. Do you think that there's more demand than supply can match? Or do you think that scale of demand on the one hand of, of investors and customers wanting things to invest in versus supply with the companies that are switched on and have the right mindset, do you see the scales as tipped to one side or the other, or they're both growing together? I think they're definitely both growing together, but I think there's also a need for there to be better matching. Uh, I think there are certainly a, a lot more organizations, financial institutions that are setting up impact investing practices, setting up their first impact investing fund, or otherwise exploring impact investing platforms. And so there is some activity on the supply side, but also there's growing demand from uh, investors across the spectrum, all the way from retail to institutional. Um, and I think there are certainly some areas where there are appropriate products that match the right investor with the right financial instrument. Um, and there are other areas where that matching doesn't exist. And so there's greater coordination that's um, needed. Okay, so matching is an interesting concept there, bringing together different parties that that may not have seen the opportunities available. But of course, that requires more people to be switched on and to be informed. And, and that's really the purpose of this podcast, to make this space more inclusive. So in that vein, are there any particular books that you might recommend that can help people to introduce people to the concepts around impact investing, but also more broadly about the big economic changes that are going on? I think as far as impact investing goes, or just more generally, the, the changing role of finance, I'd suggest Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey and Raj Sisodia, as well as The Purpose of Capital by Jed Emerson. Conscious yeah. Capitalism, which is the first one that I mentioned, it focuses on the integration of purpose and meaning into economic activity. So it goes a little bit beyond impact investing, but it talks about the importance of taking into account all stakeholders and why these practices are ultimately good for the bottom line. Jed Emerson's book is a brand new book. I think it was released mm -hmm. just a month back. You know, as, as listeners will probably know, he's widely recognized as one of the foremost thinkers in the impact investing space. And as the industry, you know, mainstreams, quote unquote, Jed in this book asks us to take a step back to really understand the origins of our current economic system, to challenge the norms or conventions that we take for granted, and then to really think about the ultimate purpose of capital in society, um, you know, which is what we've been talking about a lot on this call and which is also what the GINS roadmap is ultimately um, focused on. Jed Emerson's latest, The Purpose of Capital, is a really interesting one. You're right, you know, he's a, a really pivotal thought leader. And I think that's right, that capital is a, is a social construct is what I took right. away from that one. Um, it's mm -hmm. up to us to decide how it operates. And I think that's really empowering. One other I was going to mention um, was a recently published book called Winners Take All by Anand um, Giridharadas. This book offers a criticism that most international development work doesn't actually fundamentally challenge status quo systems, but rather perhaps just makes marginal improvements um, while still preserving the privileges of those people that are doing good and allowing them to feel good about themselves. And the author includes impact investing amongst these approaches that he criticizes. Now, of course, we at the Gen believe that this is perhaps not as nuanced as it might be, and, and you know we're not necessarily interested in marginal or cosmetic improvements to the existing system. Um, rather, our vision, which we've outlined in the roadmap report, is also about transformational change in the purpose and functionings of the financial markets more broadly. Um, but I think this book is a good reminder for how not to do international development well. And it's really important for those that are 
bullish on impact investing to be aware of some of these criticisms as well. So that's another book um, that people may want to take a look at. Interesting. Yeah, we need to keep asking the why and really questioning, you know, what we're trying to achieve. And yeah, we can have financial gains, but is the impact on the ground and other beneficiaries really, you know, having a, a new lease on life and positive change going forward? So one final question to wrap us up. There's plenty to be worried about in our world. What gives you hope? Look, it's a cliche, but but I, I truly believe that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Um, and I think by most objective measures of human well-being, whether you look at life expectancy, whether you look at health outcomes, or even the threat of violence that everyday people face. You know, life is much better today than it has ever been. Of course, that's not to say that we can kind of just sit idly by and everything will eventually turn out fine, um, nor is it to suggest that the quality of life doesn't vary significantly based on things like geography and socioeconomic bracket, etc. But I think what gives me hope is what we've been talking about for the past 40 minutes or so, and that's impact investing. Not just impact investing, but other movements such as, say, the Me Too movement, etc., that are really taking off and seeing strong momentum um, in recent years. And the growing popularity and momentum of impact investing and other movements, I think, sends a clear signal that there are enough of us who are neither satisfied with the status quo nor resigned to the idea that we are powerless to influence change. And the growing numbers of talented people committed to working towards the future that they wish to see um, is really what gives me hope. Oh, look, that's some great sentiment there and, and, and pulling it together with those, you know, that impact investing is a, is a social movement in the same way that Me Too is, I think is really interesting. And, and the fact that, yeah, it comes down to empowerment. The individual now is, is not satisfied despite sort of financial, uh, you know, in, in the West would have, you know, economic security, but still there are social issues that we're not happy about and people are still agitating for change. So great to see. All right, Abulash, well, look, we'll have the opportunity, hopefully, to meet at the Impact Investing Summit, which you'll be at uh, next month in the beginning of November. So that'll be great. And hopefully, Sydney turns on the weather for you. <laughs> yes, hopefully it's a good, good time to uh, leave the Northern Hemisphere in, in November and get some sun. Perfect timing. That's right. Well, look, it's a great group of people that get together. So hopefully we can um, continue conversations like this and, and go deeper. Great. Thank you, John. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care.